your Bibles, go with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. just finished up the book of Ephesians after 82 weeks in the book of Ephesians. This week we'll be here in chapter 4, really just looking at a couple verses, and then next week we'll move into a series talking about our identity as a family and how that should impact if it's done well and rightly and understood correctly and loved and lived out, that it should impact the way we proclaim and the extent to which we proclaim the gospel to those around us. Uh, We're going to talk about broken people in here, meant to reach broken people out there. Um, So I'm excited about that. Rusty is actually going to be preaching through most of that uh, series. So I'm excited about that, and then after that we'll go to the book of Jonah, uh, and be in Jonah for eight to ten weeks, and um, not sure exactly what we're going to do after that, but um, I do know we have another short series we're going to do in the fall, but most of our time, as you know, is typically spent working through books of the Bible, and uh, we're uh, kind of enjoying some freedom to hit some other things that we would like to, to talk about, we think would be helpful for us as a church, and um, and uh, of course, we'll, we'll probably not settle back into a book that takes us like two years to get through, or at least at that pace, for a long while. Uh, we'll probably try and fly a little bit higher through different books, uh, probably for the next year or two, and then maybe settle into another book after that for a long time. Um, as you guys know, our philosophy of preaching is to fly at different altitudes above different books of the Bible, but typically to preach through verse by verse through books of the Bible, so we're not leaving that, but changing pace just a little bit. Last thing I want to say before jumping in here is that uh, Russ and I uh, had our elders retreat this past week from Wednesday night uh, through Saturday night, Uh, had a wonderful time in the Word together. (coughs) We read through the book, The Broken Reed, by Richard Sibbs, who was a Puritan, and um, it was a as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this book, it was a, a balm to his soul, and I think a balm to our soul as well. God was very kind in that. And, and then we got the chance to spend a couple of days just looking forward to where God is taking us as a church. Uh, things that we want to see uh, us grow in, uh, weaknesses that we have, and, and things that we can be better at and uh, and we're just excited. We're just we're excited. I, I, I'm excited that over the next four weeks, particularly at Rusty, is going to get the opportunity to share uh, a number of these things that we're looking forward to come this fall. Uh, we believe God's hand uh, is in people's hearts, and we're thankful for that. So, with all that said, <clears throat> today I want to talk to you about the idea of contentment of being content. I want to think about the word content. What does that mean? For all of us, whether you would use this word or not, it essentially means to be satisfied with what I have. 
that I'm satisfied, I'm content with what I have. For most of us, though, I think we tend to think of contentment as it pertains only to the idea of materialism. Like, I'm content with what I have, with the things, the physical things that I have. We say, well, I'm content with my home, my cars, etc. Or maybe we think about it in the sense that I need to be content with these things, right? I need to be content with my car, with my house, with my wardrobe, with the things that I have. But contentment pertains to so much more than just the things that we have. How about, let me give you some examples. Some, how about contentment concerning your marriage? Contentment in marriage. Contentment in that relationship. How about contentment with your church family and its leaders? Contentment. How about contentment in your physical pain? Suffering. Physically. How about contentment in mental and or emotional suffering? What about contentment in those places? You see, contentment, as I think we'll see today, pertains to so much more than just the physical items that we have. Now, before we get going, I want to say and and make sure we explain very quickly that there is such a thing as holy discontentment. There is such a thing as holy discontentment, to be discontent for holy reasons. When you know that something is not as it should be. But even in the discontentment, even in the this is not as it should be, there can still be a contentment in the Lord that we're going to talk about today. But for the moment... Let me address this idea of discontentment, holy discontentment. I think John MacArthur is very helpful at this point. He says this, we need to recognize that we're all prone to this, that need, need, right? the idea of need, is the number one value in our culture today. And it's no different in the church. Need is our number one value in our culture today. Adding to the discontent, is the blurring of the distinction between needs and wants. In actual practice, virtually everything has become a need. I would charge you to look at your life and see just how many things you obsess over having that are actually just simply wants and not needs. He goes on, he says, even the church has begun to build its ministry around people's, what he calls, felt needs. So, end quote there. Need is this great, the confusion of needs and wants and preferences and desires versus what does the Scriptures actually say versus elevating something beyond its importance that the Scriptures give it. You see, we have to be very careful that you haven't idolized a want so much that you've elevated it to a need 
And then now, here's, cause here's the reality. Just like the Pharisees, when a want becomes a need in our minds, we force everyone around us to work toward the end of us acquiring that want that has become a need. It's another way to say it, like you've created a new law and now forcing other people around you to help acquire that law. So we have to be careful that our needs and wants are not being confused. I think oftentimes it is when it comes to holy discontentment. So you can even take something that seems biblical, or maybe even is biblical, and elevate it to a need when it's really just a lustful want. I was sitting in a meeting with some pastors who were talking about kind of a, um, a theological system called dispensationalism. You don't need to know what that term necessarily means. But in that system of theology, there's this idea that you have to be kind of a, uh, that a test of orthodoxy and whether or not you're actually a Christian is whether or not you believe Jesus returns in the way the Left Behind series depicts it happening. I think maybe that'll communicate. My point is this, is in that system, and in the, they, they have elevated a theological item that's important And made it a test of orthodoxy that the way in which Christ is going to return, whether it's before a thousand years or after a thousand years, and or is there a thousand years? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, like that's okay. Study it later. Uh, Like, but my point is this: taking that and making that a test of Christianity, a test of orthodoxy, is taking something that's biblical and making it way too important. That's dangerous. And we can do that in our own lives and in our own churches. I would argue, you know, just, by, just as an observation, take it for what it's worth, 99% or a majority of our discontentment is probably not holy discontentment. So let me give you an example. Let's say in your marriage, let's talk about this holy discontentment, contentment, and we're going to jump right after this into Philippians 4. Let's say in your marriage you can see that it's, there's things that's not as it should be. It's not perfect. There's, you recognize that there are things that should be there. Maybe you don't submit as well as you should. Maybe you as a husband, you recognize I don't lead as I should. You know, there should be some discontentment with that, some holy, righteous discontentment. But you can still be content Trusting God that he's still at work. Trusting God that the situation you're in is still for your good. I think many times, even in that situation, the reason we're not content is because we don't trust God. We want to have all the details so that we can for ourselves assess whether or not we should be content or not. Which is not being content in God, it's being content in our own reasoning. So let's see what Paul has to say about this very important topic. Chapter 4, 11 through 13. Let's read. He says this, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. And the verse that everyone likes to quote, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I want to pray for our time. Father, would You bless our time. Father, give give me the grace to speak in a way that shepherds the flock among me this morning. To that extent and no further, it's in Your grace, it's in Your name, in the name of Your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Paul says this. He says this. I found it. I've learned it. In any and every circumstance. I found it. I learned it. I know what it means to be content. That's what we're after today. What is the secret? What is this learning? As I reflected on this this week, I, I, I was reminded, quite painfully, that I've spent much of my life discontent, unsatisfied, and not with the right things. Most of my life, I have spent simply trying to get through to the next stage of life. I found that in high school, as I was doing college work in high school and trying to get through college as quickly as possible and, and then trying to get through my master's degree at seminary as quickly as possible, trying to get on to the next thing. I was always thinking, how can I hurry up and finish this stage so the next will come? I even find myself thinking that way in parenting. Well, if we can just get through the twos and the threes and on to the fours, right? And Now, there is some, you know, there is some like, Ah, some fresh air might come at some point. Uh, There is some of that. uh, But being discontent in the fact that God's given me a two-year-old, thinking that this is not for my good. (laughs) It is for my good. It's not the way I want it to be. You see, being discontented is a universal problem. It doesn't matter at what stage of life you are in, discontentment will always be there. People can have plenty, and people can have very little, and still be very, very discontent. People's lives can be going very well, and still be a measure of discontentedness. And it's a universal problem for Christians as well. This is not just a Those who don't love Jesus and those who do, this is a struggle of ours. You see this all throughout Israel's history. Look at how much they were discontent with God's provision. How quickly they wanted to return to Egypt, for they thought they knew better than God. They were discontent. You see, our discontentment is ultimately a revelation of our distrust in God. You see, deep down, we struggle badly with trusting God and believing that He only does good for His children. 
We struggle to trust Him and only in Him. And because we do, because we struggle with this, we are discontent in so many ways. I know for many of us, myself included, I can struggle with discontentment in one place in the same day as I struggle with discontentment in four other places all in the same waking hours. And it's because we don't trust God. But you see, as we think about discontentment, we need to explore, and, and, and I'm going to press in, right? So it's going to be uncomfortable, which I think many of you are used to, but like, it's going to be a little uncomfortable as we press into what's the root of discontentment? Where's this coming from? How, what, how can Paul, who's experiencing greater suffering than most of us will ever face, how can he say, I found the secret of contentment? See, we've got to figure out what's going on inside. It's not enough just to recognize discontentment and say, I need to be content. I'd even argue it's not enough to just say, I'm discontent. I'm sorry, Father, help me to be content. We need to think, what is causing the discontentment? What's the root? What's underneath of it? Then, ask the question, and we will today, how do we nurture our discontentment? Like, like how do we, sorry, let me rephrase that. How do we nurture contentment and deal with discontentment rightly? That's what I meant to say. How do we learn the secret of being content in any and every circumstance? How? How do we do this? So we should begin here. We should begin with a definition of contentment. Paul's talking about contentment. Okay, so now let's look in the scriptures and go, what is contentment? What's it look like? We're going to stay in this context most of the time, but let's look outside of the context, but let's stay within the Pauline context since he's the one using the word here in Philippians. Let's look at a couple other Pauline passages and see what he says there. So 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the second half of that verse through 10. Paul says this, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Now listen here. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. He says, for when I am weak, I am strong. He says, I'm content. As I brought up in my house gathering this past week, we were talking a little bit about this. They, they always kind of get a little preview of the sermon because my mind by Tuesday night is already on to the next Sunday, typically. I made this comment that many commentators believe, and this is, I, I admittedly, speculation, that the thorn in, if you're familiar with the thorn in the Second Corinthians if you're familiar with the idea of Paul and this thorn and God would not remove it, many commentators believe that the thorn in his flesh, given the context of 2 Corinthians, is actually people stirring up discontentment and subsequently division within the body. That that's the thorn in Paul's flesh via the church in Corinth that God will not remove from Paul. And yet Paul says, I'm content. That blows my mind. That blows my mind. 
Again, notice, the circumstances have no bearing on Paul's contentment. He's content no matter the circumstances. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Again, notice that the circumstances have no bearing on Paul's contentment as he's speaking here to Timothy. We brought nothing in, we'll take nothing out. I can be content. I can be satisfied. There's more passages we can look at. It's going to turn up more of the same thing. There's a great Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. He wrote a, wrote a wonderful book uh, called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. You should read it. He says this in this book. This is kind of his definition from the Scriptures about contentment. He says this. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That that's what contentment is. I I think you see this with Paul. You see that that's the definition that he's using for contentment. That our highest ambition, if you want the secret to contentment, at least starting to get at the secret to contentment, it is this. Our highest ambition, our highest desire is to be the Lord's and to be used at His disposal. And even desire it and freely submit to it. That's what it means to be content. As we build this thought about contentment, let me take you back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, but you can read it. You're familiar with the story. In Genesis chapter 2, we have a glimpse of contentment. In the garden, Adam and Eve were the picture of contentment. Right? They were satisfied. They had everything they needed. Food, water, purpose. Everything. Adam was content with his wife. He was content to work for God. He was content to look over, to look over creation and oversee its prosperity. He was content to spread the image of God. Adam was content to see the boundary markers of Eden expand to fill the earth as he worked the ground on God's behalf. He was content. Eve was content. She was satisfied. She was pleased. They got to walk with God. Then Genesis 3 comes along, right? And here comes a temptation toward discontentment. One day, Satan slithers his way up to Eve and whispers in her ear, 
Eve, are you sure you should be content? I mean, there's this tree over there that will give you something that you don't have. Something maybe even you need. Something that God is withholding from you. Satan deceives. He deceives her. He listens. And and listen to this. He does so not by pulling things out of the air. He does so by twisting God's words. You should be discontent. God didn't really say that. He said this. He doesn't really mean this. He means this over here. And he twists God's words. Here's the deal. He actually gets them, encourages them to believe something wrong, and he does it even from the scriptures. Imagine that. And so, as the story progresses, as discontentment blossoms, It gives birth to sin and rebellion against God. And they eat from the tree. Seeking contentment. It's very important for us to notice this. That the sin of inward discontentment, when it's undealt with, will lead to the sin of outward rebellion. Always. The sin of inward discontentment will always lead to the sin of outward rebellion. So in this story, out of discontentment, out of discontentment, This discontentment of sin, the sin of discontentment spreads. Sin continues to spread to the entire world. Here's what happened. Adam and Eve grew laser focused on what they didn't have. And so focused on what they did not have that they lost sight of what they did have. You need to keep that theme. It's going to come back up multiple times today. Let me quote to you someone I read this week. He says, The contentment that we saw in Genesis 2 was lost. And as a result, in all directions, peace was turned to enmity. Dependence was replaced with independence. Submission was replaced with rebellion, and our ambition to belong to a sovereign God was replaced with an ambition to be sovereign ourselves. This contentment, replaced with discontentment, led to these things. You see, Adam and Eve wanted, this is what's happening 
and the discontentment, the lie of Genesis 2 and 3, is that Adam and Eve wanted to sit at the same table of authority as God. They wanted to be God's peers. Consider how horrible this is. Let me read to you a quote from John Piper. He says, God is infinitely worthy and honorable, but sin says the opposite. Sin says that other things are more desirable and more worthy. How serious is this? You see, the seriousness of a crime is determined in part by the dignity of the person and the office being dishonored. If the person is infinitely worthy and infinitely honorable and infinitely desirable and holds an office of infinite dignity and authority, then rebuffing him is an infinitely outrageous crime. Therefore, it deserves an infinite punishment. You see, Adam and Eve's discontentment with God made them infinitely deserving of an infinite punishment. That's how horrible this is. See, we think of discontentment as some kind of like quiet, respectable sin that we just kind of deal with when we get around to dealing with it. But you see how horrible this is. Let me tell you how beautiful the gospel is. You see, Christ came to save us from, his, from this sin of discontentment and from the rebellion that it fruits. He came to redeem us from this. Every ounce of it, every speckle, He came to save us from our distrust of God that leads to discontentment and rebellion. You see, our actions and our words day by day have told God, you're not good enough. I need something you won't give me. And I'm not satisfied in you alone. I must have something else. Jesus comes And he says, listen, I don't need anything else but my Father. I don't need anything else but his glory to be shown through me. And he goes to the cross and he dies. And those who are covered by his blood and redeemed by his blood are set free from this discontentment. And we are washed of the penalty of this discontentment. So let's talk a little further. What are four things that discontentment reveals? Four things that discontentment reveals. I would encourage you to write these down. These are not the only things, but certainly four things that discontentment does reveal. Before I give you the first one, let me say this. Again, discontentment is not some respectable sin that we're to deal with just here and there. Listen, discontentment, let me help you, is a poison. It's a poison. You guys have heard it. Now the grass is always greener on the other side, right? 
What is that? It's just the poison of discontentment. Listen, this poison, it destroys families all the time. I'm not content with my wife. It destroys families. So I must look elsewhere. It destroys churches. It destroys marriages. It destroys parenting. It destroys evangelism. Always murmuring and grumbling. Discontentment. David Powelson says this. He's a biblical counselor. He says, Grumbling is a most serious sin, a capital crime, a primal offense against the God whose universe this is and whom he is sovereign over. Discontentment is not something to be dealt with lightly. It is something to be rooted out with every ounce of your energy that you have. Four things discontentment reveals quickly. First of all, discontentment reveals thanklessness. It reveals thanklessness. It reveals a lack of gratuity. It reveals thanklessness. Here's what happens. We become so mindful, so mindful, like it's ever on the forefront of our mind of what we don't have. And it's so prevalent in our minds, that which we do not have, that it suffocates our ability to be thankful for what we do have. You know what I'm talking about, right? You can want something so bad all day long. And then you get to the point where you should be able to get that and it's denied you. And then other good things happen, but you can't even see them. It's like nothing can make you happy. You know what I'm talking about? Again, what happens? We become so laser focused on what we don't have that we can't see what we do. We can't see the grace of God around us. The reality is, again, though, think about this, is we are saying to God that what we do have is not enough and you are not good. That's what's being proclaimed when we are discontent. Church, I was thinking this, as we together face various trials, ask God to keep your eyes and your hearts focused on what we do have. Keep them there. The grace of God at work. Keep your eyes there. Let the other stuff fade away. Let's be thankful for what we do have. Number two, what does discontentment reveal? It, secondly, it reveals arrogance. It reveals arrogance. You know, we're often discontent because we believe that we have a better plan for our lives than God does. It may not be the ultimate plan for your life, but certainly your plan for today, your plan for the next hour, 
I have a better plan. And I'm discontent with the plan God has served me. What's that based on? It's based on the arrogance that we have the better plan. Now, we might, listen, we might even spiritualize it and say that the scriptures say that I should have it. Right? In the garden. Did God really say that I can't have that? Adam and Eve say, I think I have a better plan, God. I've got the better plan. How about we think about physical suffering? Think about physical suffering. Whether it's just because of the brokenness of our bodies or because of the afflictions of others. Like, do we think that we know better than Almighty God, the one who is sovereign over those afflictions? Oh, I'm too righteous. I don't deserve this. Reveals arrogance. Discontentment reveals arrogance. Thirdly, discontentment reveals lust and greed. Discontentment reveals lust and greed. I want more. I want more. I need more. We're greedy. What I have isn't enough. I want to encourage you this week, even in house gathering, to think through what does this look like? What's it look like? What do these things look like in church, in marriage, in parenting, in the workplace? What's this discontentment? How is it, fru- how is it revealing lust and greed? Listen, church, God has provided. It's what we see going on with Paul. God has provided for our deepest needs in Christ. He has restored us whole. Those who are His children, before the throne of God, we stood as rebels, broken, desperate. And God takes care of that need through Jesus. He does this. And yet, we want more. It's not enough. That's discontentment. And it's revealing lust and greed. Fourth thing, discontentment reveals entitlement. It reveals entitlement. It's really hard to watch someone in their pride feel entitled to something that's just absolutely not theirs to have. And then to see that discontentment fruit. You see, we actually believe, listen, listen, we actually believe that we deserve something from God, that He owes us something. He doesn't owe us anything. We, we believe sometimes that He owes us a life free of physical pain or a life free of mental suffering. We believe that He owes us a certain kind of marriage 
or a certain type of church that fits our preferences. Or maybe even our overinflated convictions. That we're somehow entitled to this. Discontentment reveals many things. And the list does not stop here, but we will for the sake of time. Think about it, though. Think about this, right? As we sing the songs that you're familiar with, we were orphans lost at the fall. That phrase, as Ephesians says, we were dead following the course of the world in Ephesians 2. And in the midst of that brokenness, He has healed our souls, given us a new heart, and brought us into relationship with Himself. See, our discontentment reveals to us one of two things. It either reveals the shallowness of our belief in the reality of the gospel or it reveals that the reality of the gospel is no reality for our soul at all. Discontentment reveals one of those two things. Either we have a shallow understanding of just what has been done on our behalf in the gospel, or we don't understand it at all. What's scary is that we could even be preached to concerning the gospel over and over and over again and completely miss it. See, the shallowness of our belief is sometimes revealed in our discontentment in the gospel. So what's at the bottom? What's at the bottom? What's at the bottom? I would argue that it's It's all just idolatry. I don't mean that in a minimizing sense. It's idolatry. Let me quote to you someone I read this week. Beneath every grumble, beneath every murmur, beneath every moment of frustration, the sin beneath the sin is the fact that we want something more than we want God. And that we love something more than we love God. And because we do, Until He provides that for us, we are going to be discontent and dissatisfied. Listen, I told you, it's going to be really rough below the surface of discontentment. Some of you are discontent with what we're talking about. Again, discontentment is poisonous. You have to watch it, even as a church. Like discontentment spreads easily within the body of Christ. Easily. From one mouth to one ear. To one mouth to one ear. It moves on and on. As one person becomes discontent, idolizing that God won't give them something that they want. And so their discontentment spreads. It's poison. And it's hard to overcome. Hard to overcome. See, discontentment erodes right worship. Discontentment erodes right worship. 
Right? We, we talked about this before. You're, we're always free to worship. Like, we're, we're, let me back up. We're never free to not worship, but we're always worshiping something. You see, but when discontentment settles, you cannot worship God. This is what's going on with Paul. Paul is content. He's worshiping God because he's not idolizing these things going on around him or the lack thereof, the things that he wishes were going on around him. But it erodes right worship. You see, discontentment and worship of God are mutually exclusive. They don't go together. Because on discontentment, by necessity, is saying God's not worthy of worship. Period. They're mutually exclusive. And when you are not seeing God clearly to worship Him, you're not seeing anything else clearly. Your vision is skewed and messed up. You have things out of order. Listen, you aren't viewing your spouse clearly. You're not viewing the church clearly. You're not viewing your elders clearly. You're not viewing your children clearly. You're not viewing your workplace clearly. You're not viewing anything clearly if you're worshiping something other than God. The danger is, is maybe you think you are. You see, because worship is our response to God for who He is and what He has done through Jesus Christ, when you want to be who God is and are not satisfied with what He has done, you don't worship. You can't. Listen, many of you come in here, even this very room, week after week thinking that you are worshiping God, but you're so discontent, you just simply can't. I mean, you sing songs, but it's not worship. It's just a religious, self-righteous experience. When we are discontent, God's gracious gifts often serve in hardening our sinful hearts because every gift of the Lord is a reminder that we still haven't gotten what we really want. Let me read that again. When we are discontent, God's gracious gifts often serve in hardening our sinful heart because every gift of the Lord is nothing but a reminder that we still haven't gotten what we really want. And we talk about like when you hear the word of God, it either softens or it hardens, right? This is one of the ways that it hardens by necessity. Because if there's something you really want, then every time you hear the word of God preached, it's going to be a reminder that you're not getting what you want. 
See, that's how faithful, again, let me read it, let me say it in a different way. That's how faithful preaching of God's word can serve to harden your heart because every time it happens, even though it's grace, it serves to remind you of what you don't have. Let me give you a second example. That's how a godly spouse, listen to me, a godly spouse can serve to harden your heart further because with every act of grace from him or her, it further reminds you that you don't have what you want. Discontentment, right worship, they don't go together. They can't. By necessity, they cannot. You see, a discontented heart refuses God's grace. When Paul's living in this, Paul, in this affliction, he's trusting and resting in God's grace. Why? Because he's not idolizing something that he doesn't have. It re- Listen, a discontented heart rejects ministry. The discontented heart is so laser-focused on what it wants that it doesn't care that God might have to offer something else outside of what they really want. You're so laser-focused, you can't see. It's like, it's like horses in a parade with blinders on, right? Just so focused. This happens, I see this all the time, People become so focused on one little thing that they can't have that they're willing to chuck everything else because of that one thing. Because of an over-elevated understanding sometimes of that one thing. They're willing to chuck everything else. But typically, the person they know, they can't just do that, so they go looking for other things to be discontent with. But listen, God, listen, to, to, to steal a little bit here from C.S. Lewis. God intends to bring us up out of the mud pies, but we reject the feast of His grace because we're so consumed with what we don't have. We refuse it. We cut it off because of what we don't have. Last thought underneath this section is that a discontented heart hinders joyful obedience. Joyful obedience. How do you think Paul's able to work through these things? My goodness. It's joyful obedience because he's content. Listen, if you're discontented, this means you don't trust God. We talked about this already. Now, it's really, really hard to follow God when you don't trust Him. It's really, really hard to follow God when you don't trust Him. So as discontentment grows, so does anger and this distrust cycle. So all I want you to grab here is that discontentment is not the environment in which joyful obedience grows. Discontentment is actually an environment in which willful rebellion grows. Because just like Adam and Eve, we will try to do everything we can to secure that which we don't have, that we feel we need and cannot live without. It just happens in marriages all the time. My spouse isn't giving me what I want. Name it. And I deserve it. So I'm going to go get it someplace else. Last Main thought for today is this. 
We must nurture contentment. We must nurture contentment. Paul says, I've learned this. I've learned this. Let me quote you from famous preacher Charles Spurgeon. He says this, these words, talking about Philippians here, show us that contentment is not a natural propensity of man. Ill weeds grow apace. Covetousness, discontent, and murmuring are as natural to man as thorns are to the soil. We need not sow thistles and brambles. They come up naturally enough because they are indigenous to earth. And so we need not teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. But the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. If we would have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be the garden and all the gardener's care. Now contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it. And even then, we must be especially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the grace which God has sown in us. Contentment has to be nurtured has to be learned. So let's talk about nurturing contentment in our closing here today. We should do the things that foster contentment. Sorry, where, where, where's that at? Look at Philippians 4, just a little bit before this. It says, finally, brothers, verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, just a side note here, peace and contentment are very closely linked. You don't have peace because you're not content. But what's he saying? What's Paul saying? You gotta nurture contentment. You gotta think upon these things. Lead your mind and your heart to remember these things. We have to remind ourselves constantly to think about the grace that God has given us all around us, lest our eyes become laser focused on what we do not have. So how do we nurture contentment? The first one is that we do things that bring about contentment. Second of all, we remove the things that push us away from contentment. Now hear me clearly. I'm not saying we remove the things we're discontented with. I'm saying we remove the things that move our hearts and tempt us toward discontentment. The temptation. We remove the temptation. So what are some things that might tempt us and move us towards content, discontentment? How about people? Are the people in your life actively pushing you to be content in what God has given you? 
I would like to warn you that you don't have the strength to pull them up out of their discontentment. Only the Spirit can. And you need to understand that their discontentment is a poison and it will eventually have its way in your heart. How about activities? So people, how about activities? Entertainment, websites. How about Facebook, Instagram? And so we're not, listen, we're not going to have a Facebook burning, okay? That's not my goal here. You know, like the old CD burnings. Everyone bring in their Christian CDs and we'll have a fire. Or, I'm sorry, well, that, maybe that too. <laughs> bring in their non-Christian CDs and we'll have a fire. Uh, and some demon will come up out of it, you know. Uh, if you've seen the Babylon Bee post about that, it was funny. <laughs> so we're not going to have a Facebook fire. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not saying everyone has to get rid of their Facebook. I'm just saying, listen, does it foster discontentment? Does Instagram foster discontentment in your life? Does it, does it remind you of all the things you don't have? Maybe you should get rid of it. Maybe you should stay away from it. So if we're going to nurture it, we've got to do these practical things that help move us in one direction or the other. But listen, it's not a this or what I'm about to say. It's a both and. And I would say even more fundamentally and even more important is that we should also repent of our grumbling and discontentment. We should repent because of what it says about God. Whether you're explicitly saying it or not, it's what's being implied with your actions and with your words. So we should repent of our grumbling and discontentment. I would encourage you, you've got to get in there and search deep because you might be discontent and think that it's righteous discontentment when it's really simply not. You say, well, how do I do that? Know the Scriptures. Know the Scriptures. And second, have a humble estimation of yourself in your ability to know the Scriptures. So repent. Even repent of these practical things that you're doing that is feeding discontentment. In this repentance, let me encourage you, be brutally honest with God about your discontentment. Be brutally honest with God about your discontentment. I gave you some exa- I'll give you some examples. Tell him you wish your husband would lead better. Tell God that. Tell him your discontentment. Tell him you wish your children would behave better. Tell him you wish your pastors of this church acted or did things a certain way. Tell him. Tell him you wish you had more friends or certain friends. Tell God that you wish the physical pain would go away, that it was gone. Tell him you wish your mental, your your mental and emotional anguish would be gone. Tell him what you're discontent with. Tell him all of it, and then ask him to lead you to repentance. 
for the things. I'm not saying that these things can just be left undone are left undealt with. They can be dealt with in the right way once you've stopped idolizing them. So repent and ask God to teach you to be content. Paul says, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So ask God to make your heart glad to be used in whatever way He deems. And the third thing I would encourage you with is this. So it has to be nurtured, right? Get rid of the certain things that cause discontentment that are provoking your and embrace the things that encourage contentment. The practice of repentance. God, I'm sorry for these things and confessing them before the Lord. And lastly this, if we are to nurture contentment, it will require this, looking to Jesus. Looking to our Lord. What's Paul say in verse 13? He says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This isn't a verse about, you know, I can go reach the next Super Bowl because I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. And This isn't about I can become president someday because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's, that's not the point. What's Paul's point? Paul's point is I can be content to be used at God's disposal because he strengthens me. Right? The, the all things, all things is the mission of God. I can do all those things because of him who strengthens me. Why? Because because of his work, I'm looking to Jesus. You see, listen to this. I I, I took you through the the story of the garden, right? There's a tree. There's a temptation. There's discontentment. Sin, rebellion, right? Well, at the end of Jesus' life, we find him in a garden just like Adam. In a garden just like Adam. The anguish of the tree that he is about to partake of is before his very eyes. And you see this issue of contentment and discontentment rise up in that moment. But in that moment, what does Jesus say? Not my will, but yours. What's he say? What's he saying? I'm at your disposal, God. Why? Because I'm content with you. I'm content with you, my Father. I'm at your disposal. You use me how you deem fit. Jesus had no higher ambition than to belong to the Father and to be used at his disposal. Jesus was content to submit and trust in God's sovereign rule over his life. And as I studied this passage and thought about these words, Jesus was content to say, as the psalmist says in 73, verse 25 through 26, Who have I in heaven but you, Father? 
Who have I? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Do you hear that? That's what Jesus is saying in the garden. Not my will, but yours. I desire nothing here but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, the psalmist says, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. If we are to have contentment, it certainly has to be a work of the Father. But we have a responsibility to work therein as well. To nurture it, to repent of discontentment, and to willfully, in the power of the Spirit, turn our eyes to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Um, We're going to take the Lord's Supper today. In just a few moments, they go ahead and come forward. Joyce and Karen will be serving us the Lord's Supper today. I want to give us, remind us of some instructions here from God's Word concerning communion. Concerning the Lord's Supper, Paul says this, for as often, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's interesting, he says this, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. What's Paul's instructions here? It's very clear that if we have unconfessed and unrepented sin in our lives and we partake in communion, we are actually bringing judgment upon ourselves. And he says this, That's why some of you are weak. That's why some of you are ill. Because you're facing the discipline of God. Instead, judge yourself. And and I don't have time to explain what that means, but discern, think upon yourself. Spend time there. So I want to encourage you that. We probably don't talk about that enough as we partake in communion, but we are on a rhythm of about once a month. And I want to make sure that we are in, instructed appropriately. That there are even times when the elders should lead the church in withholding communion from people because of unrepentant sin in their lives. So let me encourage you to think upon your own heart. Repent where necessary. And if you've not reconciled, then go do that. But do not partake.
if you can't. I want to pray for us. Dear Father, you are most gracious and kind to your people. Father, you are so merciful to us. Father, I just ask you that you would have your way in the hearts of your people. That you would break down the coldness of each of our hearts, the spots where we are not willing to submit to you. That we would be whole people, wholly committed to you. I pray that you would give us contentment. Father, let us not live in discontentment and then blaspheme you by taking of the body. For we are speaking out of both sides of our mouths when we do. Father, for those who are content, let us be content with the blood and the wine, the, the bread and the body. Let us be content therein and therein only. For your glory and our good, amen.